What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. March 2013. A local man takes his dog for a walk on the outskirts of Peterborough in Cambridgeshire, England. The landscape is nearly flat, surrounded by the coastal plain of the Fenlands. And there is nothing to obscure his horrific discovery. Dumped in a rural ditch lays the body of a man who has been violently stabbed to death. The police don't know it yet, but there are more bodies where that came from. A spree killer is on the loose. The fugitive in question is Joanne Dennehy, an individual who kills without hesitation or remorse. And her motivation seems to be for the sheer thrill it gives her. And she isn't alone. While on the run from the police, Dennehy is accompanied by her enamored henchman Gary Stretch and Mark Lloyd. Dennehy says she wants her fun, her fun being hunting down men and killing them. Stretch and Lloyd want nothing more than to appease Dennehy, even if that means satisfying her thirst for blood. Together, the three fugitives drive around while Dennehy looks for people to kill, selecting people at random. Dennehy targets a man who is out walking his dog. She jumps out of the car and stabs him twice with her pocket knife. Lloyd watches from the back seat as Dennehy returns to the car, pleased with herself. But it wasn't enough to quell Dennehy. About ten minutes later, Dennehy finds her next victim, another man walking his dog. This time, Dennehy stabs him more than 30 times before stealing his dog. I think she's she's somebody who perhaps has always enjoyed hurting other people. It's almost like she's this crazy scientist and the world is her experiment. In her 12-day killing spree, 31-year-old Joanne Dennehy had butchered three men and stabbed two others in broad daylight, leaving them for dead. Some have characterized Dennehy as a femme fatale, a woman who entices men into her life before transforming with deadly results. I think the the reason that we're so fascinated and so shocked by female serial killers is because of our general expectations of the role of women in society. We expect them to be the carers and the nurturers and the givers rather than the takers of life. She looked into my eyes and she said to me, Christopher, killing you would be good for me. And it was an ice-cold stare, I can tell you. So, yes, she would have killed me in a heartbeat if she'd had a chance. This is What Makes a Killer, a 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious serial killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Nitoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Joanne Dennehy.
Joanne Dennehy was born in 1982 in the city of St. Albans in Hertfordshire, England. Dennehy grew up with two other siblings in a loving and secure family home. Her mother worked in a supermarket, and her father was a security guard for a telecommunications company. On paper, Dennehy had an idyllic childhood, says author Jeffrey Wansell. She had a sister to which she was very close. Uh, they had even developed a secret language. Uh, she, was, uh, she played netball for the school. Um, she was a very normal, quite bright schoolgirl. But as Dennehy entered her teens, she began to rebel. She started to experiment with drugs. She started not going to school. And she linked up with a man called John Trina. Dennehy's parents tried to intervene, but she was too defiant. Christopher Barry D. is the author of Love of Blood, the true story of notorious serial killer Joanne Dennehy. Uh, parents, they were at their wits' end. They didn't know what to do. Uh, they tried to keep her locked up or bring her home from school. The teachers tried to reprimand her. And the more they tried to control Joe, it was Joe saying, stuff you. And it, it was li literally like throwing petrol on a fire. Dennehy and Treener ran away together setting out on a turbulent relationship. Despite Dennehy's violent outbursts, the couple had two children together and eventually settled in Cambridgeshire. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says her behavior only became more destructive. I think quite a lot is made of the fact that Joanne Dennehy misused alcohol and, and drugs, but, but I think she's well aware of the fact that this is going to be discussed, and she knows that these offer quite a convenient excuse for her behaviour. And alcohol and drugs and other substances can disinhibit, but that's assuming that people have got those moral standards to begin with, and Joanne Dennehy didn't have them in the first place. As time went on, Dennehy's erratic behavior intensified. She would cheat on Treener and leave him and their two children for irregular periods of time. Her drinking worsened and she, reportedly, began to carry a knife hidden in her boot. I think she's, she's somebody who perhaps has always enjoyed hurting other people. It's almost like she's this crazy scientist and the world is her experiment. Finally, in 2009, Treener took the children and fled from Dennehy, afraid of what she might do next. The company that she was keeping as well, she was surrounded by people who were similarly disconnected. So, so I think when there was no check or filter or break on her behavior, she was only going to get worse. Dennehy did get worse. Dennehy had become no stranger to the local police. She was in and out of prison for drug offenses. She was also given 12 months of community service for owning a dangerous dog. In February 2012, Dennehy spent three days in a psychiatric unit where she was diagnosed with a series of disorders. She has had various diagnoses attached to her, antisocial personality disorder, psychopathic personality disorder. And these are our conditions. They're not mental illnesses. So she's not somebody who feels bad, who feels remorseful, who regrets things. She does what she wants to do, and she doesn't care about the consequences. But by 2013, the now 31-year-old Dennehy had settled down once again. 
in a small room in Byfield, a housing complex in Peterborough. The local residents were unaware of her troubled past or her sadistic nature. Michelle Bowles was one of Dennehy's new neighbours. She was polite to me. She was well-spoken to me and never swore. She was actually quite pleasant, do you know what I mean? I showed her respect. She loved babies. She was excellent with children. Um, I didn't have a problem with her. But other residents were wary of Dennehy. Michelle's friend, John Chapman, lived in the same building as Dennehy. He was a Falklands War veteran who'd fallen on hard times. I don't know what regiment he used to be in. I should know, because the man of stories used to say, it's just John being smiley all the time and happy and nice to know. But John Chapman didn't smile when Joanne Dennehy was around. Far from friendly, John seemed to think Dennehy had it out for him. John was petrified. John came in mine and he said, on several occasions, there's this mad woman moved in. She says she's going to get rid of me whatever way she can. And he was right to be afraid. In just a few months, Joanne Dennehy's threats would turn violent. The room that Dennehy rented was managed by Kevin Lee, a father of two who lived in Peterborough with his wife, Christina. Christina remembers when they took on this new tenant. To Christina, she was just another destitute person for Kevin to help out. He was stressed with work, the money element of it. It was turning into kind of a nightmare, really. It was getting a little bit unmanageable. Kevin used to house disadvantaged people. So he'd done it for years and obviously was used to giving people chances. Um, and so he did with, with her. But Kevin Lee and Dennehy's relationship quickly grew. They first went into business together when Lee employed Dennehy as a rent collector. And he just said about this woman and that she's really tough, really hard. He needed to evict some people and whether she was threatening, and it suited him because he wasn't getting any joy from the council. So I think she had a bit of wellies and, you know, really big mouth and threatening, and I don't know whether that, at the time, he thought that was his only way out and to deal with these people. 48-year-old Kevin Lee became infatuated with the younger Dennehy. Their relationship escalated, and they soon became involved. In exchange, Dennehy was now living rent-free in at least two of Lee's properties across Peterborough. Christina began to notice that her husband was acting differently. Obviously, I wasn't aware at the time. To me, it would have been just another tenant. In a household, that becomes quite apparent if someone's behavior's sort of changed and didn't seem quite himself. Christina and author Jeffrey Wansel said that Dennehy would make up unnerving stories to tell Kevin. At one point she told Kevin Lee her father had abused her and that she'd killed him. Absolute nonsense, of course, never did anything of the kind. She was neither abused nor did he, was he dead. 
but she was also a pathological liar. Kevin just said about her that um, she spent eight years in prison because he raped her as a child, abused her as a child. Um, it's not unbelievable story, but then when Kevin said that she'd also killed other people and that she hadn't got caught for those, it sounded a bit far-fetched. I just I didn't know what to think. I didn't know whether it was a truth or whether it was just a load of old rubbish. But it wasn't long before Joanne Dennehy turned those murderous fantasies into reality. 31-year-old Lukas Slabosevsky met Dennehy and began exchanging text messages with her. In March 2013, Lucas went to visit Dennehy at one of the houses where she was staying in the suburb of Rolston Garth. He was her first victim. She almost certainly lured this man with the promise of some kind of sexual favor. But without a moment's hesitation, she stabbed him through the chest once, very, very hard, killing him almost instantly. Lucas was led to believe that the pair were in a relationship, and he naively entered the trap she had laid for him. He was enchanted by her spell. The effect Dennehy had on men, says Christopher Barry D. Everybody that comes into contact with Joanne Dennehy, it's like falling into a spider's web, and you can't get out. Men can't get out. They become entranced by her for all sorts of reasons. After the murder, she showed no regard for the life she had just taken. Then he puts this poor Polish man's body in a wheelie bin and then shows it to a 14-year-old. And so, look how, how clever I am. I've killed this man in the wheelie bin. But it was only a temporary solution. Dennehy knew she couldn't keep Slabosevsky's body in a trash can. She had to dispose of it, and quickly. She needed help. She called upon one of her friends, 47-year-old Gary Stretch, who was more than willing to assist. Joanne Dennehy is quite bright. She's quite clever. So she's able to exert quite a lot of control in her interactions with, with other people. And that's what makes her exceptionally dangerous. Now, looking at the relationship that Joanne Dennehy had with her accomplices, I think she was able to, to charm these men. She was able to kind of lure them in, really. And they would have been flattered by her attentions. You know, here she is, this younger woman wanting to spend time with them. These were men who had quite dull, quite boring lives. And I think they were quite excited to, to get involved in, in what Joanne wanted to do. A hulking, seven feet, three inches tall, Gary Stretch towered above Dennehy's slight frame. Stretch had been an unsuccessful burglar, and he was absolutely infatuated by Dennehy's twisted charm. Gary Stretch and Joanne Dennehy met uh, when both of them were on parole from prison for various offenses. She realized that she could use him to do whatever she wanted. Um, he was her bodyguard, her minder. 
Um, and that's how they formed this team, which became so overpowering for Stretch that he would do anything for her. I don't think Joanne Danny had any emotional feelings towards her accomplices whatsoever. They were useful to her at the time and, and she just cast them aside when she was finished with them. With Stretch's help, Dennehy dumped Lucas's body in a ditch out in rural Thorny Dyke. It was just 10 miles east of the Peterborough city centre. But Dennehy was unable to control her lethal compulsions. Just over a week later, Dennehy would strike once more. This time, she turned her attention towards her fellow Byfield resident, the veteran John Chapman. Reportedly, John walked in on Dennehy while she was in the shared bathroom of their apartment complex and stared. Michelle Bowles described how John had been deeply afraid of Dennehy from the beginning. Every time he spoke about her, he was sh- with fear, like this, the, in his tone of voice. And we thought, it's just John, J- John, just leave it. If she starts, here's our phone numbers, ring us, and we come around, you know, help you and get you in here with us. He went, thanks. And that was the last time we saw John. On March 29th, 2013, Dennehy attacked John Chapman. John Chapman was an inoffensive kindly man who may have been asleep or in an alcoholic stupor when Dennehy killed him. But she did so by stabbing him once in the neck, severing his carotid artery, and then five times in the chest with such force that one wound broke the breastbone. Um, It also punctured his heart. It's a frenzy that is quite difficult to comprehend, but evidence of what the behavioral scientists now call escalation. First victim, one stab wound. Second victim, six stab wounds. It's heartbreaking. See, a poor defenseless man killed. And to know what she'd done to him, how she killed him, it was just heartbreaking for us all. As Dennehy's confidence grew, her actions became more brutal. Her crimes stunned the nation. The public was only used to hearing about violent men. But a female offender challenged their preconceptions. Dennehy touched the public imagination because she was a young woman and one who seemed to contradict everything that most of us expect of women. And to do so in such a cavalier and violent way that she set herself apart from the female population. This woman actually used a knife to attack a grown, strong man is very up close and personal. It's not at the point of a gun, which is not quite a personal thing. It's not by bludgeoning. It's not by strangulation. By nature, a woman is not often strong enough to strangle a strong man. But this is a young woman using a knife to repeatedly stab somebody. And for that reason alone, makes her a hands-on, blood-lusting killer. 
it's always been said the woman's method of killing is usually poisoning. It can sometimes be other things, but knives, no. It's a very male killing method. And it's led some people to speculate that Dennehy was to some extent trying to be more male, more masculine than the men around her because she felt they were rather f- weak and feeble and she had to be the boss. After murdering John Chapman, Dennehy wasn't finished yet. She continued her spree almost immediately, choosing an easy prey, someone close to her. Later that day, Kevin Lee, her boss and lover, came over for a visit. Joanne Dennehy was in the middle of a murderous rampage. After taking the life of 31-year-old Lukas Labasevsky 10 days earlier, Dennehy had killed 56-year-old John Chapman. Now there was a third victim in her sights, her landlord, Kevin Lee. The pair had been having a secret affair. Kevin's wife, Christina, was the first to notice something was wrong when he didn't arrive home one evening in March 2013. He was very much like a come home from work, tea on the table, pyjamas on. He was quite sort of traditional and old-fashioned in that sense. I tried to ring him and his phone wasn't on, which was odd in itself. He'd never have his phone switched off because that was his livelihood, that was his business. And... I knew it had charge. Kevin had been threatened by Dennehy days before, but he didn't take it seriously. Kevin did tell me that she told him that she wanted to kill again, and I think that was the crucial thing, because it wasn't just a case of bragging or mentioning that she'd committed murders in the past. It was the fact that she specifically told him she wanted to kill again. So that's going to unnerve anybody, false or not. It's just not a thing that normal people say. As the hours passed, Christina grew concerned and desperate. She reached out to Kevin's business partner, Paul Creed, to track down her husband. I'd asked Paul to look at Kevin's phone records, so he gave them to me. And there was a number that kept appearing on the telephone. And I said to Paul, I said, "Um, which houses are empty at the moment because I need work doing to them? And he gave me a list and I subsequently just went round to each of those properties. Christina knew something wasn't right. Kevin could be in trouble. She began an urgent hunt, unaware that her search would be in vain. Because Dennehy had stabbed Kevin Lee to death. It was at the same house in Rolston Garth where she'd murdered Lucas Slabasevsky ten days earlier. Kevin Lee was Dennehy's third victim. At this point, the timeline of Dennehy's murders could profile her as a type of killer. 
I wouldn't describe Joanne Dennehy as a serial killer. I would describe her as a spree killer because there didn't seem to be any points during her, her killing spree in which she returned to any semblance of, of what was a normal life for her. It tended to be a, a continuous chain of events. By definition, a spree killer commits two or more murders within a short period of time in different locations without a cooling-off period between kills, meaning they don't take breaks. It appeared Dennehy would have continued her murderous rampage. What is not in doubt is that these first three victims were simply a prelude to what she hoped would be a further spree. Dennehy once again needed help. Along with Gary Stretch, she employed another accomplice, Leslie Layton. Dennehy and the two men deposited the bodies of John Chapman and Kevin Lee on the outskirts of town. John was left at Thorny Dyke, the same spot where they had dumped Lucas Lebesevsky's body. Kevin Lee was disposed of 10 miles further north, near Newborough. Dennehy dressed Lee's body in a black sequin dress and left him positioned in a grotesque and crude manner, with his buttocks exposed. Crime writer Duncan Campbell notes, I think Joanna Dennehy was unusual in that she liked humiliating her victims. It was clearly uh, a modus operandi there, and there was a clearly a motive, the pleasure of, of killing somebody rather than doing it for some particular reason. Oblivious to the fate of her husband, Christina Lee was becoming increasingly anxious about his whereabouts. I rang the police, then I went back with Paul Creed to one specific house because I noticed that the light wasn't on and then it was on when we went back later. So I thought, there's obviously somebody at the house and I just said to the police, you know, I'm really worried, expressed my concerns and gave them permission to break into the house, which they did. Inside the house on Rolston Garth, the police immediately sensed that something was wrong. They said that they could smell, there was a really strong smell of bleach, and they could see some blood on the floor, and, you know, I just knew. Christina wouldn't have to wait much longer for news of her husband. The following day, police were called to an area of farmland in Newborough by a man walking his dog. He made a terrifying discovery, the body of Kevin Lee. Christina was shocked. You know, you see it on TV all the time, the dreaded knock at the door. Um, and then two detectives came. And obviously he had not been identified at that point, but they just said that they'd found a body which, you know, I was expecting to hear that. So they just kind of told me what I was expecting to hear. You don't feel anything, because you... because you know. And it's a feeling that you've never felt. So, you know, where some people might think you'll be doing this, you'll be doing that. I don't know, it's just kind of a blur, really. You're just alive. I think that's but not alive, you're just existing. Detectives soon discovered Kevin Lee's burnt-out car. 
Christina had also provided them with Dennehy's phone number, and they were quickly able to make a connection. They must have been trying to call it to and using their systems or whatever, must have tracked it down through GPS that the location of Kevin's burnt-out car was where this mobile had been. So it was quite obvious that she'd been there. They realised that he knows somebody called Joanne Dennehy and there was an affair between them. And then they came across a man called Leslie Layton, who they interviewed. He tried to cover up, he didn't know anything about them, where they were, which in fact he did. He soon cracked because he was weak-willed, spineless. And he said, yes, Dennehy and Stretch are on the run. They've gone east and they'll probably come west. And with that, the police went wallop. They, they issued a national wanted alert for every agency in the country to find these, this couple as quickly as possible. Dennehy and Stretch were now wanted fugitives. But Dennehy wasn't afraid of being caught. She reveled in the idea, high on the thrill of being on the run. She loved the notoriety of it. Um, she relished the fact that the men around her were frightened of her. To try and evade the authorities, Dennehy and Stretch first headed to Norfolk, where they robbed a house. They then made their way, cross-country, to Hereford. Here, they intended to sell the stolen goods to help fund their escape. Dennehy and Stretch became a, a sort of a, I hate to say this, a Bonnie and Clyde-type outfit. Their faces were in all the newspapers now. They were wanted, most wanted. After they robbed another property in Hertfordshire, the pair stopped 20 miles outside of town to link up with a man named Mark Lloyd. They get an accomplice or a friend of theirs to bring the stolen property into Hereford Town to sell it, and it's at that point that Dennehy decides she wants to kill again. It had been four days since the murders of John Chapman and Kevin Lee. On April 2nd, with Lloyd joining them, Dennehy entered a small shop in Hereford and pointed at the cashier in a threatening manner, footage captured on the shop's camera. Just 10 minutes after leaving the shop, Dennehy attempted to murder a fourth man. She had this terrific anger and bloodlust. She's had a quarter bottle of whiskey. She's been smoking roll-ups. And she suddenly sees a man walking his dog in broad daylight. And she says to Stretch, stop, we stopped the car, I want to kill him. Brandishing a knife, then he jumps out of the car and runs up behind him and stabs him in the back. Dennehy's victim was Robin Baressa, a 63-year-old retired fireman. The attack was unprovoked and random. You knew exactly how she, what she intended to do. I'm going to kill you, she said to the fireman. I want to hurt you. I'm going to kill you. And she plunges this five-inch lock knife into his back Time and time and time again. The man thought he'd been punched. He turned around and saw her covered in his blood. He collapsed. She calmly walked away and got in the car and said to Stretch, no, let's go and find somebody else. 
Back in the car, proud of herself, Dennehy took the time to pose for a selfie. And she was eager to continue the hunt for her second victim of the day. Ten minutes after the first attack, she spots another man walking his dog. And it was the same bloodthirsty scenario all over again. She got out and she told Stretch to stop the car. She got out with this very small knife, uh, walked up to him and plunged it into him time and time and time and time again. Can you imagine the shock? This man wouldn't have known what was happening. It's broad daylight. She's licking the blood off of the knife, his blood. He feels himself getting dizzy and sick, and then he collapses, and she takes this dog, walks casually back to the car. Another car passes, and she waves at the people in it. They get in the car, and off they go. The second victim was 56-year-old John Rogers. Dennehy stabbed him more than 30 times. It is a reflection of a brutality, a viciousness, a lack of any kind of control that makes Dennehy very unusual. She is a most frightening figure who uh, behaves in the most obscenely violent way imaginable, almost defying belief. When we look at the, the two attempted murders you know, towards the end of her, her spree, this is something altogether different. These are strangers. These are men that, that she doesn't know. So I think what was happening here was that she was upping the ante. She was getting bored. You find that psychopaths tend to have a proneness to boredom and a need for stimulation. So, so she was even applying that to her murders. Remarkably, both men survived these attacks. Although their injuries were life-threatening, they were still able to give the police descriptions of Dennehy. She had an instantly recognizable star tattoo on her right cheek. By now, the police sirens are going all round, and blue lights are going all round Hertfordshire. They're panicking. It's like somebody's kicked over a wasp nest. The local police had been alerted of Dennehy's spree and were coming close to putting an end to her bloodshed. They cornered Dennehy and Stretch in Hereford. Two officers turn up and they spot this car with Dennehy in it, talking to the dog on the back seat, while Gary Stretch is trying to negotiate stolen property at the front door of one of his associates' house. They arrest Dennehy on the spot. Gary Stretch and one of his friends do what they call in police parlance a runner. They jump in another car and speed off. Something like a car chase goes on for about 20 miles and then Stretch decides to get out and run for it. Now, Mr Stretch is not built for speed and of course he's very unfit and he's stopped and he's around to the police officer and said, ah, you've arrested me. Joe and I would have been the next Bonnie and Clyde. There is footage of Dennehy in custody at the Hereford police station. Just 40 minutes after stabbing two men, Dennehy was laughing and joking with the arresting officers. One white four, attempted murder and murder. Attempted murder and murder, what's that mean? So going down for Sunday roads? In case you missed it, Dennehy said, attempted murder and murder is nothing. 
It's like going down for a Sunday roast. Easy. Joanne Dennehy is like a chameleon. Um, she's become a very accomplished actor, so she will play to whatever audience is in front of her. Um, she can be charming and, and sound very educated and, and literate. And at the same time, to another audience, she could sound quite rough and quite downbeat. So she's, she's really honed these, these skills of responding to, to the people that, that are around her. The following day, April 3rd, 2013, the bodies of Dennehy's other two victims were discovered in the ditch at Thorny Dyke, Lucas Slabasevsky and John Chapman. John's neighbor, Michelle Bowles, remembers hearing the news. We wasn't concerned till we actually noticed he was missing. No one had seen him at all. And next thing we knew, the forensics were around the back of the house. We were praying outside, thinking, please don't let it be John. Let him live. If we had known what he meant and what she was going to do at the time, we would have got John out of that house and let him live with us. But how were we supposed to know she was a serial killer? To take John's life, Lucas's life and Kevin's life. Why? Joanne Dennehy's pre-trial hearing was set for November 18th. Few could have predicted that Dennehy, well-educated and raised in a stable home, would one day become so evil and sadistic. One British headline following her capture read, The Baby-Faced Angel Who Became a Serial Killer. A photo of Dennehy began circulating from the press taken moments before a murder. In it, she reclines comfortably in a chair, holding up a large, ornate dagger, her long brown hair falling from her gray knit cap. She's sticking out her pierced tongue, eyes closed. A small star tattoo is stamped below her right eye. A pair of handcuffs dangle from her belt loop. It's very difficult to understand quite how far the road is from a nice suburban upbringing to a ditch in Peterborough where you're dumping the bodies of men you've stabbed to death. It's an extraordinarily long road, a very dangerous one and a very destructive one, but she certainly travelled it and took some pleasure in the travelling. At the hearing, Dennehy was completely free of remorse. She laughed as proceedings took place and stunned her legal team when she chose to plead guilty. The fact that Joanna Dennehy decided to admit murdering these three men and denying them a lawful burial took the whole of court two by surprise, including her defence barrister, who said that proceedings weren't going as anticipated. So the judge asked Joanna Dennehy in the dock what she'd said. She told him, I have pleaded guilty, and that's that. Her defense attorney, Kareem Khalil, said that shock rippled through the courtroom when she made her plea. It surprised all, I think, but the judge, who seemed entirely satisfied with that result. Um, her counsel asked for time to speak with her to see whether she really had meant what she just said and returned to tell the court that, yes, she entirely understood the charges against her. She meant to plead guilty, and that was the end of it. Many of the serial killers I've interviewed obviously is guilty of sin, 
try to hide behind the criminal justice system and use it as uh, a defence uh, to retreat back into it, uh, to use mitigation. Uh, um, I didn't intend to kill somebody. But I had a drink disorder or a drug disorder. I'm not culpable of committing these crimes. Basically, I'm innocent. Joanne Dennehy is not like that. She just loved it. Kevin Lee's widow, Christina, didn't end up making an appearance in court. She couldn't bring herself to face the woman who had murdered her husband. I went to court, but I stayed in the family room. I didn't want to be in there because I didn't want that thing to ever see my face. I thought, you haven't got the luxury to grace my face, so therefore you shall not see me. She was that cocky and pathetic and so predictable. And I just thought it's just so abhorrent that I thought, no, it's just best off in another room. Gary Stretch, Dennehy's partner in crime, argued that he was manipulated by her throughout the killing spree. Gary Stretch's position was that he had not known that she was going to kill any of the people that she killed, um, whilst accepting that after the event, um, he was made aware that she had killed people. And the difficulty, of course, that he confronted um, was the assertion that he was a willing participant in covering up those killings once he became aware of them. There's no question in my mind um, that uh, Dennehy uh, did influence uh, Gary Stretch hugely. Joanne Dennehy is somebody who was very much in the driving seat all the way through the, the murders that, that she committed, and the men were just there in, in a supporting role. You know, she was, she was the, the centre stage actor here. And I think the fact that she was doing this on her own, she wasn't coerced or compelled by, by anybody else, does make her quite unique. In a final act of defiance, Dennehy refused to relinquish control of her fate over to the legal system. She stood up in court and announced, I don't want to be controlled by anybody. I don't want to be controlled by my lawyers, by the police, by anybody. And that's what she told the judge. Get stuffed, basically. Get stuffed, Your Honour. On February 28, 2014, Judge Justice Spencer sentenced Joanne Dennehy to a whole life term she became the first woman in British history to receive this sentence. Dennehy was immediately sent to Bronzefield Prison, where she will remain for the rest of her life. The fact that she'll never see daylight again in the outside world is of huge comfort for the family. For Joanne Dennehy, it's absolutely the right thing that she won't come out of prison. Joanne Dennehy was unusual in that the most notorious women murderers in this country have tended to be associated with a man, either Myra Hindley associated with Ian Brady or Rose West associated with her husband Fred. Dennehy was kind of acting alone, although she had people helping her a bit afterwards, covering things up, but she was a kind of self-motivated murderer. I think the, the reason that we're so fascinated and so shocked by female serial killers is because of our general expectations of the role of women in society. We expect them to be the carers and the nurturers and the givers rather than the takers of life. 
Dennehy's accomplices were also imprisoned for their role in her crimes. Leslie Layton, who helped dispose of two of the bodies, received 14 years, and Gary Stretch received two life sentences. The sentences offered relief to the community. But Michelle Bowles says that doesn't change the fact that three innocent lives were taken. It's the victim's family as well. They're carrying the life sentences, isn't they? Cleverly's not going to see his kids not have kids. Lucas is never ever going to have kids. John, you know, is never going to be around again. None of them are. He wasn't a horrible person. He was one of the loveliest, generous people you could ever meet. He really was. He would have done anything for anybody. And for Christina Lee and her family, it would take a while to recover from their own tragedy. Personally, it makes you want to rethink the death penalty. To me, that'd be too easy for somebody like that. Let them rot wherever they are, really. So, yeah, I expected that. I think it was just so hideous how a female, you know, it's hard to even think that's a woman. Would I say she got what she deserved? Not at all. She didn't get what she deserved. She just is where she needs to be. It's just everything, everything has changed. You know, what was a family unit and people just going about their business, everything came crashing down. He was a laugh a second. He was the most, one of the most optimistic person I've ever come across. Never moaned about anything, not negative about anything. Any problem would be overcome, we laughed a lot. So, yeah, we had a lot of fun. At the time of her imprisonment, author and journalist Christopher Barry Dee took a special interest in the case. I wanted to really try to get inside how the police were working and how rapidly they caught this very dangerous woman. The intense curiosity he had for Dennehy's crimes caught the attention of the murderer herself. Very soon, Christopher was in written correspondence with her. Her letters beautifully written, um, very eloquent, very good grammar, um, certainly on a par with somebody of a good education behind them. Um, and we developed this relationship where I was trying to get inside her head but at the same time, she, being the arch manipulator, was trying to get inside my head. Even locked away, he says Dennehy still continues to wreak havoc. From the day Joanna Dennehy was sentenced to prison, she has exhibited more antisocial behavioural traits in as much as she's tried to escape twice. She wanted to chop the fingers off a, a prison officer and use that on the electronic keypads to get out. In 2015, Christopher went to visit Dennehy at Bronzefield Prison. He says she still retains the same murderous impulses. She looked into my eyes and she said to me, Christopher, killing you would be good for me. And it was an ice-cold stare, I can tell you. So, yes, she would have killed me in a heartbeat if she'd had a chance. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media 
and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Mavridekis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi and Daniel Birch. Recorded by Adam Garner at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the survivors and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thanks. On the next episode of What Makes a Killer. In November 1957, in the small town of Plainfield, Wisconsin, police were searching for a missing woman named Bernice Worden. They were about to make one of the most gruesome discoveries in U.S. criminal history. One of them turned on his flashlight and beamed it around and saw this object that was hanging from the rafters, which at first they thought was some kind of gutted deer. They realized to their incredible horror that it was a woman's corpse that was hanging by its heels. Inside the farmhouse was a trove of human remains collected by a 51-year-old loner named Ed Gein. There was a lampshade made of human skin. They found the, the remains of 12 human heads, gloves made out of the, the skin from a corpse's fingers. 